Okay, it's my great pleasure to have in the studio with me Kate Raines-Goldie. She is Adjunct Research Fellow at Curtin University. She's Director of games of the Games Interactive Program at FTI and she's the founder of Games We Play. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. So your PhD, Privacy in the Age of Facebook. We've just had recently, over the weekend, Labor, uh, very late to the party rethinking their support for the data retention laws. Uh, Senator Scott Ludlam said today the time for those second thoughts was in March. To start with a, a broad question, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that government policy as far as data retention and privacy in this fair country? I think it is really sad. Um, Facebook has, I guess what the big takeaway for me in my PhD was the internet has changed a lot in the past 10 years, especially with our expectations of privacy. Um, And I think people had a lot more privacy 10 years ago. And I think that the the changes that Facebook has brought about where basically, this is the findings of my PhD, is that they pushed us to be more, more open and to expect less privacy. And so... I think maybe 10 years ago, if we tried to get these laws passed, it wouldn't have happened because I think people hadn't given up. So I think, you know, Facebook kind of created the situation where people just say, well, I have no privacy, so it doesn't matter. So we can pass these laws because we have no privacy anyway. So it's a slippery slope. And I think sort of one of the things I I came to to conclude at the end of my PhD was I read 1984 when I was in my teens and I guess probably had a big impact on me and you know the fact that I ended up doing a PhD on this on on privacy and surveillance in Facebook and um, you know you think well how did they actually get to that point and I think how do you get to the world of 1984 is is through um, apathy and distraction and you know the reason that people are giving up their privacy is I think they've given up but also the rewards for giving up privacy there's a lot benefits. You know, we can't live without our phones anymore, but they're basically little surveillance devices in our pocket. I mean, I've heard stories of people who get advertising based on conversations that they've yeah. had near their phones. So scary. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just what we're seeing. It's just we're, we're allowing it to happen. And it's really sad because, you know, maybe it's not impacting us directly right now, but it will. It's going to start impacting the average person. Yeah. And by that time, it's going to be too late. We had this uh, situation a few weeks ago where, you know, in a moment of joy and solidarity, people everywhere, uh, all around the, the planet, changing their Facebook profiles to the, you know, beautiful rainbow. It was a beautiful gesture and I'm sure it warmed a lot of people's hearts to actually see uh, everyone's Facebook profile changing a sea of rainbows, it was called. I noticed uh, that you uh, raised some questions about this in some article or two come out suggesting that there was something more nefarious at play here. You comment on that? Yeah, that was quite interesting. So um, a few years ago, Facebook actually ran experiments on on its users to to do to see if um, emotions could be spread as memes. So they they tweaked people's feeds to either make them more positive or more negative to see if emotions could be spread through news feeds, and it turns out that they could. But the big thing that was the real takeaway for most people, I think, from that study was the fact that they were doing experiments on users and no one consented to that. So if you were at a university, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. That would violate ethics policy. Um, And so what? there's a huge outcry against that. And um, so a few conservative blogs 
who I think probably do have an anti-gay agenda, which is why people dismissed what their concerns were, which I think is kind of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But their concerns were, well, this could be a potential another experiment. And even if it is or it isn't, they're running these kind of experiments all the time to see um, how to optimize their advertising. So the other issue is, too, is that um, there's also studies that show that you can see predict who's gay and who's straight based on their their Facebook profile. So there's issues there around safety as well. So if you're putting these flags um, and there's people who are not potentially out, it could be, you know, there could be a way to figure out if someone is gay based on their acquaintances. So there's all sorts of issues around, um, you know, maybe you're not out because of a safety reason. Maybe you're living in a a place where it's not okay to be gay. So there's a reason that you're, you're protecting that. So, that's interesting, the fact that people were just kind of dismissing this concern and they were happy to to, to put this um, um, change on their avatar. The other thing I found really interesting is that when I started my PhD research um, in 2008, people really didn't weren't not, were not aware of the, the tracking and all of the things that Facebook was keeping tabs on for people. So people would say, well, I don't put anything private on Facebook. And they didn't really realize that it wasn't just what they actually knowingly put on Facebook, but it was also who they were clicking on and um, what they were looking at and all of these other things that are kind of invisibly tracked. So now people will, when I, when I raise this as an issue, people are saying, well, of course Facebook is tracking me, but why does it matter? Or the other thing that I found quite interesting was, um, well, Facebook is free, so I need to pay something. So it was, it was quite a shift in from people not being aware and kind of being outra- outraged when I started my PhD about eight years ago to people just saying, yeah, well, of course, being ambivalent about it. And and so one, one person even said I had a sense of entitlement that I wanted to use Facebook for free. Um, there's no option to pay to use Facebook, so it's not – I don't think it's really necessarily a choice. I also argue that the use of Facebook is not really a choice because it's like giving up your phone. I have quit Facebook. I have experimented with quitting Facebook. It's very difficult. Yep. It has a, it has a definite definite economic cost and a social cost. So you can't just quit Facebook and not use it. So, yeah, it was really interesting to see how that debate has changed. And it's really people are a lot more just accepting of the fact that this is happening and don't really want to do anything about it. And that I find a bit disturbing. I guess the, the best is... You know, we could hope for is that an, an, an alternative to Facebook emerges, and you know, something that has a more of a, you know, clear community uh, foundation and privacy kind of options. Yeah, I mean, that has been tried, and things did exist before Facebook. So, Live Journal is a really, really great example of a community-focused open-source platform um, that was created for the community by the community. And actually had very strong privacy controls, um, but it's been since sold to a Russian company, and it still exists. But it shows that using the internet and using social media doesn't necessarily have to mean giving up your privacy. People have just kind of accepted that these two things go together. They don't. Um, there's an, a fork of, of LiveJournal called DreamWith, which a lot of people use as well. The challenge, though, is that it's not a, really a technological problem, so... Diaspora was another example of an open source platform that was created to to get people, provide people with an alternative to Facebook. The challenge is what's called network effects. 
So basically the idea that the more people who are on a network, the more power that network has. And so the challenge is that, sure, you and I can go and start our own network and be on there, but there's no, they, there's not really much use to us because all of the people we know are on Facebook. So for a while there, we were seeing brand new people would would move from one platform to another. So they'd go from LiveJournal to MySpace to, to Facebook. And so those, you know, had a, MySpace doesn't exist anymore. Well, it does exist, but people don't really use it. Um, so I think there was kind of an expectation that something would come after Facebook and people would go there. But we've had Facebook for 10 years now. So it's almost like become email. Yeah. And I don't think there's other, there's not really a precedent for that other than, I guess, email in terms of an internet. And email is like a public, not public, but it's a, it's a it's non-commercial a platform yeah. that is not being monetized. Yep. I know uh, from some experience that even amongst people who so-called really should know better, um, you know, creating networks amongst, uh, you know, left kind of progressive people who, as I say, should know better, that's been really hard to get off the ground. I know, you know, several groups try, have tried to do that. Um, let's uh, segue a little bit into, you know, a different hat you're wearing, I guess, the director of the Games Interactive Program at FTI. Uh, Scott Ludlam recently uh, again, Scott Ludlam, he's a, he's a, a voice in, in this area that where there are very few other voices as far as federal politics go. While everyone else in the world is enthusiastically supporting their local, local game industries, Australia is doing the opposite. Uh, while, the market for, while the global market for games continues to grow every year, Australia's game industry is actually shrinking. How can we change this, Kate? Um. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Scott Ludlam because he's doing, you know, two things I care passionately about is, you know, protecting our privacy and um, working to support the games industry in Australia and particularly in Western Australia. Um, so I recently went to New Zealand. Um, I was hosted by Grow Wellington, which is the Economic Development Council there. And so they flew me over to, to check out their local games and technology industry. And what they're doing right and what a lot of other places are doing right that we're not doing is supporting their games industry. So... Games is a $93 billion industry globally. It's a massive industry. Um, it makes It's an economic no-brainer to be supporting it. Canada has the Canadian Media Fund, which has successfully supported the games industry. Games industry in Canada is massive. Um, New Zealand has funding for their games industry. Um, we don't have any state or federal games fund. We used to have a federal games fund. It got cut last year. Um, similar to the Canadian Media Fund, it was a grant program where the game companies would pay back their loan and it would be a self-sustaining fund so that other game companies could go and get the money and the industry would grow. And they were starting to make money, it was starting to become self-sustaining. It had only been running for a few years and they cut it, which just boggles my mind because it just seems like, again, it's such a massive industry. Why wouldn't you want to support it? And um, Scott Ludlam has called an inquiry into that, and he's um, found that the the industry actually has been drinking since that's been cut. So how can we support games getting funding for the early stage of games when it's really hard to get any other kind of funding? So getting to the prototype, getting past the prototype stage, getting to where you can get private investment and crowdfunding, um, which is the model used in every other country except for Australia. So I mean, it's, it staggers me that uh, these great economic minds uh, in 
Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be getting behind this uh, yeah great opportunity really. Talk a little bit as well, Kate. I guess as a woman in the the gaming industry uh, and the culture there. Uh, in, in the gaming industry, how's, how's that kind of culture emerging? I know that there's um, this can be really tricky. There's obviously um, was it Gamergate? Yes, just recently. That, um, still going. Still going. <laughs> <laughs> What's your comments there? I guess in you know I guess in your role as uh, the director of games, interactive program at FCI, in getting young women engaged with with the gaming industry. Mm. Yeah, so we're lucky because Perth is a really inclusive. We we have fifteen percent of the games industry here is women, which is slightly higher than the national average, which is 10%. So that's really good. But also that um, the everybody involved in the industry locally is very supportive and very inclusive, and I've never had any sort of unfortunate or enraging, I guess, incidents happen in Perth, which has been great. And um, we had a pitch night last, last week, and we had a um, few women pitching, which is great, not as many as we... Um, should have, but we're you know we're working towards it. Um, but you know things have happened to me and lots of people that I know in, in other places, and it is really hard because often you will have a situation where something inappropriate happens, um, and then you have to actually go and speak to someone to advocate for yourself. So there's kind of a double thing there where you're not only having the situation happen to you, but you have to go and advocate and convince someone that they need to do something about it and um sometimes you'll be turned down and then nothing is done about it so it's like a triple kind of horrible thing that happens and so it it just boggles my mind that in 2015 it's still hard to be a woman working in games because it's 2015 and it just seems like that shouldn't happen anymore but yeah apart from that Kate yeah apart from that Kate I mean (laughs) surely there's uh you know, there's again an economic kind of rationale that would, you know, suggest that having women engaged in creating games for young women. You I mean I'm sure, uh, you know, women like to blow the heads off zombies as much as uh, men do. Maybe not. <laughs> you know, is there? There's clearly room there for more female minds in the create the whole creative and the whole process. Yeah, fifty percent of women now are gamers, and I don't think that. I mean, I think I think that. There's amazing games like Dragon Age that are incredibly inclusive in terms of what you can play in terms of um, gender, race, sexual orientation. You can play pretty much anything you want, and that's great because that's a choice you don't often get in video games. And they've you know had had problems where people have complained to them about the fact that it's possible to be gay and the fact that they might have a gay encounter by mistake if these are straight guys who you know don't want this possibility. So. Yeah, they get upset about that, but um, yeah, Dragon Age is amazing. So yeah, I mean, there is a definite economic, you know, if that if it's purely economic, it makes sense to have women making games because women know what other women want in terms of games, and just the fact that it's you know it's not about like pink ponies and games about I don't know stereotypically girl things that you know often comes to mind. Not well, not necessarily often comes to mind, but you know, it's kind of the the go to thing. But I think women. I think just making games inclusive so that they appeal to everybody yeah. makes sense because you can have more of an audience. And I think having more women be involved in the game making process, it's hard to think outside of your own lived experience. And so if you have that lived experience, it's easier to make a game that appeals to you. Yeah. So I, I give a little plug for our event uh, next Monday night, just now, um, regarding the TPP. 
with uh, Scott Ludlam at the Defectors Bar 7pm Politics in the Pub, uh, also featuring uh, Labor MP Melissa Park. Um, I'm mentioning that because obviously the you know data, you know internet freedom is a, a huge issue as far as the, the Trans Pacific Partnership goes. But apart from that, how can our listeners, I guess, get engaged? I mean, this I'm sure there's there's listeners out there atomized uh, as we often are that may not even really be aware how how to access the, the gaming community here in in Western Australia. Sure. So we run a monthly playtest event called Play Up Perth. So if you go to playupperth.org, you can um, get on our mailing list and find out about our, our events. But basically, it's a really great event to see what the latest and greatest local games being developed are. Uh, the Friday night it alternates between Friday and Saturday. Um, the Friday night is at SK Games in um, Northbridge, and it's a really nice kind of chill, come, come with your friends, have a beer, we have a bar. Um, and play the latest games, and you get to meet the developers, so you can talk to them, give them feedback about their games. Um, if anybody's interested in getting involved in becoming a game designer, especially women, um, I run the FTI program um, to be super inclusive and to have no tolerance of any harassment. So, so our events are very inclusive and very very positive to anybody who wants to come. Um, and also I'm more than happy to talk to any women who want to get into games or are already making games and want to get connected with the community. Um, our next Play Up Perth event is this Friday. So it's the 31st at SK Games. And if you go to playupperth.org, you can get tickets. It's only $10 and it goes to support the games, local games community. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us. Thank you for having me.